Turning your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 4, we're continuing our study of what we're calling really like the nation of Israel, but it's looking through the life of David. First and second, first Samuel basically deal with Samuel and Saul, a little bit of David. Second Samuel is going to deal with the life of David. And as we look this morning, here's, this is going to be something special. David finally becomes king over the entire nation. That's what we're going to see. And this is the fulfillment of God's promise. God promised that David would be the king, and God always keeps his word. David's going to be the king. It's not been easy. There's been all kinds of things. There's death and division and problems. And as we look at this passage today, as David becomes the king, we see he still has to continually trust God. And he does this, and we've seen it all the way through. We're going to talk about that. As we look at this passage, i got three things that just sort of jump out that I want you to think about as we go through the passage. One is there's the idea of give no appearance of evil. What that really means is, and the Scripture tells us, that as believers, there may be things that we do that may be not wrong, but it might look wrong. And so we as believers have got to be lights in the crooked generation. We've got to live righteously. We'll talk about that and see how David did that. We'll see also that we have to trust God in the events of life. That's what we've seen David doing. We have to do the same thing. And then we're going to look just briefly at the subject of redemption because David mentions it, and we'll see how that ties together, and we'll, we'll look at that. I think one of the great, one of the great comforts of life is knowing that God is in control. He's working all things together. He's working all things according to the counsel of his will. And sometimes there are bad things happen, but you look back and you say, well, ultimately that was bad, but it, but it ended up uh, turning out for good. And sometimes that things happens in our life. I, I just wanted to say this. Most of you know this story. Some of you do. It goes all the way back to when I was coaching at Mississippi State. I coached at Mississippi State from 1973 to 80. And uh, while I was coaching there, I began to study the Bible, and I got to uh, teach Bible studies, and, and it was a, a real turmoil because I loved coaching, and I was coaching, I was on the football staff, but I also coached track, but at the same time, I was teaching the Bible. And uh, something happened. The final year that I was there, a new coach came on our staff, and he was, um, he was like a, one of the coordinators, and he was brand new. And uh, he ended up not liking me at all, and he didn't like two other coaches, and he did everything he could to get us fired. So he made my last year at Mississippi State really bad. Here's how it happened. I was sitting in the dining dining hall one day, and he came by, and he looked at me, and he said, I heard you're sort of religious. I said, no, I'm not religious at all. I said, religion is man trying to please God. I said, I'm a Christian because I have put my faith in Christ for eternal life. Christianity is God-pleasing God. God sent his son. And he just looked at me, and then I said, "Uh, tell me, have you ever understood about Christ and all that? Well, he got so mad at me. He said, I'll get you. And for the next year, he tried to get me. And it was really terrible. It was the last last year I coached, and it was really one of the worst years. Uh, I mean, we had great fun and things, but it was really horrible. And what helped is uh, Coach Tyler, who was the athletic director and the head coach, he resigned. And when he resigned, it made it easier for me to resign. And I'm going to say it this way. If that year had not been so bad, I would have probably never wanted to resign and go to seminary. Because that was the choice. I was trying to struggle with the fact that I love coaching so much, but I, I thought maybe, maybe I should go to seminary, but that'd be a big step. And when that last year came, uh, it was a terrible year, but at the same time, God used that to get me ready to the point where I would say, okay, I'm, I'm ready. I, I'll, I'll be glad to go. And so sometimes God allows things in our lives that hurt us or that he allows to come in that test us or, or they're, they're hard things. And then all it is doing is preparing us to be ready to serve him to, to do even more. Think about, think about this. Think about um, 
the cross of Christ. When you look at it on one side, you say, oh, that's horrible. They took this great man who did no wrong and they took him up and put him on the cross and crucified him and killed him and everything. But God used it for good because on the cross of Christ, Jesus Christ died and rose again. He paid for the sins of mankind and he redeemed us. And so what looked bad in one sense, humanly speaking, actually was really good. And as First Peter says, we're not redeemed with corruptible things, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Well, as we continue this morning, we're going to see that David continues to trust God even in the trials because there's going to be more and more trials. We've seen it over and over. David's been on the run for a while. Now he's the king, but he's not the king of the whole thing, and it's just over and over again, and we're going to see that. But let me remind you as we start where we, where we are because we've had a break and we had Christmas messages and different things. If you remember, Saul was the king, and when Saul died, David was supposed to come the king. He'd been kind of an exile. Well, David became the king over the tribe of Judah, and he had a, a general by the name of Joab. He was kind of his leader. Well, the other general that had been with Saul was named Abzer, and he took one of Saul's sons, Ishbosheth, and made him king. And suddenly now there are two kings, and there's the king of the, we might say, the north, and the king of the south part, and, and the conflict raised, arose, and there became a civil war. And David's soldiers were better than the north, and they were beginning to defeat them and have victory. And so Ishbosheth is king of the north. He never wanted to be king. He, he's, he, he was just put there by Abner. And so he's king, but he doesn't really want to be king. Abner wants all the power. Well, we saw right before Christmas that Joab killed Abner. And when Joab killed Abner, then that's the end of Ishbosheth because he has no power. He doesn't want to be king. Joab worked for David. And so now what's going to happen? Now that David is down here with Joab and Ishbosheth has nobody and he's not really a king. We're going to see what happens this morning as we look through this. As we already saw back in chapter 3, verse 1, that David's men got stronger and stronger and stronger, and Ishbosheth's men got weaker and weaker and weaker. And let me give you, here's sort of the outline of what's going to happen today. And it's really, I read the passage a while ago, so you already know it's a terrible passage. But it's the Word of God, and it teaches us things. But there's so many bad things that happen in this passage. We're going to see the death of Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth gets killed. We see David's response. And then we're going to see David become the king over all of Israel, which is what we've been waiting for all this time. That's what we've been doing. So we, we call it the, the death of Ishbosheth. And we ended last time. What's going to happen now? And we said this that Ishbosheth was only king because Abner had placed him there. And so, what's he going to do now? Look at chapter 4, look at verse 1. Now, when Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost courage, and all Israel was disturbed. When he found out that Abner was gone, he didn't know what to do, because he didn't really want to be king anyway, and he sure wasn't going to fight David, and he didn't want to do anything. It says he lost courage. He never really had any power. It was Abner who had all the power. And it says that all Israel was disturbed. That means now, really, where's the leadership? If you remember when Saul was the king, most people loved David, but Saul was the leader. When Saul died, suddenly there wasn't a king because David had been in exile, and then David became king over here, and Ishbosheth became king over here. Nobody knew what was going on. There's civil war, and now Abner, the real power, is gone. What's going to happen to Ishbosheth? Well, he doesn't want to be king. He doesn't know what to do. So look what it says again. Now, when Ishbosheth, verse 1, Saul's son heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost courage. And all Israel was disturbed. Now we're going to meet, let me put this up here. We're going to meet two men and we're going to meet Jonathan's son. Now you may remember Jonathan was David's best friend. He got killed the same time Saul did. 
He has a son. We'll find out who he is in just a minute. We're going to meet two men and then Jonathan's son. Look at verse 2. Saul's son had two men who were commanders of bands. The name of one was Benaiah, and the other was the name of Rechab, and they were the sons of Remen, the Berathite, of the sons of Benjamin. For Berath is considered part of Benjamin, and the Berathites fled to get him, and they have been allies um, uh, until this day. And so we meet these two guys, and they're part of the tribe of Benjamin, which is Saul's tribe. And we're going to say, well, why would they tell us about these men? Well, why? Because these men are going to do evil. We're going to see it in just a few minutes. We're going to see what they do. Well, we've got to meet somebody else, and that's Jonathan's son. Now look at verse 4. Now Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son crippled in his feet. When he was five years old, when the report of Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened that in her hurry to flee, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. Now, if you remember that when Saul and Jonathan went out to fight the Philistines, they both got killed. And when the word came that Jonathan was dead, the nurse took Jonathan's son, he was five years old, and she picked him up and she said, we better run for our lives. And as she was running, somehow he fell, hurt his feet, and he can never walk. So he's lame. And now you remember, if you go back, and we're going to see this later, this is just giving us a preview If you remember, when Jonathan and David were alive, when Jonathan was alive, David and Jonathan were best friends, and they made a deal. Jonathan said, David, if I die, you take care of my sons or my kids. And Jonathan said, and David said, if you die, I'll take care of your kids. Jonathan is dead. There is one of Jonathan's sons. What will David do? Will David take care of this guy? What's going to happen? Could this guy, who is the son of the son of Saul be a threat to the crown? Who knows? Well, we've got these people, and uh, one of them, this is Mephibosheth, and so what is going to happen? Look at verse 5. So the sons of Remen, the Berathite, Rechab and Benai, departed and came to the house of Ithbosheth in the heat of the day while he was taking his midday rest. Well, they came and... uh, while Ishbosheth was taking his rest. Well, what do, you, what do you mean? Well, you know, in that part of the world, in fact, in a lot of parts of the world, when you get to the middle of the day, it's, it's really hotter, and a lot of people take a rest. And some people in parts of the world call it siestas and things like that. When I, was, I went to Mexico with Campus Crusade years ago, and we were going to have this rally thing, and so we thought we need to get some, some things printed. So we went to a print shop, and we got there right around 12. And we said, we'd like to make these copies. And they'd say, you'll have to come back at 2. And we said, two. And they said, yeah, we, we rest from 12 to 2. We went, what do you mean rest from 12 to 2? We, we rest. We don't. And they just shut the door. Said, come back at 2. You know, so, I mean, so some people take siestas and some people rest. And so here was, it came, it was in the middle of the day. And, and the king, Ishbosheth, in the heat of the day, he's taking his rest. And so he's resting. And that's what a lot of people did. But look what happens. They came to the middle of the house as if to get wheat. And they struck him in the belly. And Rechab and Benai, his brother, escaped. Now they snuck into the house and they said, we need to go in where the king is, but we got to get some wheat because we got soldiers out there we need to feed. So we got to go get some wheat. So they came in and were able to get into the inner part of the house and they came into the bedroom where the king was asleep. And it says here that they struck him in the stomach, in the belly, and they escaped. Now that's not all the information. 
because this says that they stuck him in the stomach, but you've got to keep reading because verse 7 says, Now when they came into the house while he was lying on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and killed him and beheaded him, and they took his head and traveled by way of the Arabah all night. While he was sleeping, they cut off his head. Now, this is pretty gross. I mean, let's just face it. They come in there, they stab him in the stomach, they kill him, and they cut off his head. Now, let me tell you what they're going to do. They're going to take his head back to David, and they're gonna, they think that they're doing something good for David. They think David would want this man dead because he's a king, and David's supposed to be the king, so we're going to kill him, take his head back to David, and say, we killed him. And see, the reason they take the head is because if they just went back to David and said, we killed Ishbosheth, David would say, Prove it. What do you mean you killed him? So if we have his head, we can take it back and say, this is him. This is him. We killed him. They're actually thinking that David's going to be happy. They're thinking that David's going to go, well, thank you. You killed my enemy. I'm going to be king now over everybody. Thank you so much. I'm going to reward you. That's what they're actually thinking. And so they kill him, cut off his head, and they're traveling back. That's what they're doing. It says, if you notice at the end of verse 7, they took his head and they traveled by way of the Arabah all night. Arabah means south. In, in, in Israel, there's the, an, the thing called the Arabah, which is the southern part down where Beersheba is, and it's more like a desert area. And so if you said if you were going to go south, you wouldn't say I'm going south. You'd say I'm going to the Arabah. And so this is what this says here. They traveled uh, by way of the Arabah. They went south going back to David. That's what the, the plan was. They are going to go meet with David. And <clears throat> they're thinking, oh, this is good. David will be very happy. Now, you remember something. I want you to think about it. Do you remember when Saul got killed, when Saul killed himself? And then that guy came, got Saul's crown, his Amalekite, and he told David that he had killed Saul and brought the crown. He actually thought David would be happy about that. And you remember what David did? David said, you think I'm happy about that? And they killed that man right then. David, and here's something you've got to remember. David never says anything bad about any of his enemies. He never said one bad thing about Saul. He never said one bad thing about Abner. And he's never going to say one bad thing about Ishbosheth. And David never tried to take the kingdom for himself. He wanted God to do it. He trusted God. So we can learn from this. Be careful. Don't say things about people, whether they're your friends or your enemies. Be careful. And we're going to learn from David. So let's see what happens here. It says in verse 8, when they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron, and they said to the king, <clears throat> Behold, the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. Thus the Lord has given my Lord, the king, vengeance this day on Saul and his descendants. Now, they came in there, and look what they've done. They said to David, The Lord has given vengeance this day. They're trying to make it look like. They did something good for God. They're coming in God's name and saying, God has granted vengeance on you. God used us to kill this bad man, and now you're going to be the king. It is amazing how throughout history, people have used the name of God to do so many evil things. I have this book that's a daily reading. You read 365 days, and it's called The Christian History Book. And it takes you, based on dates, all the way through the history. And it is amazing to me to go back through history and read how many times believers killed each other. 
Because if you were a Catholic and you hated Protestants, you killed them. And if you were a Protestant and you hated Catholics, you killed them. And if you were something else, you killed them. And if you were in one thing and they didn't agree with you exactly right, they killed them. And if you look through history, through God's name, people have done many evil things. And what we see here is these men are coming to David and then said, the Lord has given you vengeance. They're using God's name to justify their evil. And I'm going to tell you, I think most likely they were, they were seeking a reward from David. They thought David would say, wow, thank you so much. Just put the head over there. Uh, thank you so much, and uh, thanks for what you've done. That's what they thought David was going to do. Uh, David didn't do that. Look what David David answered Rechab and Benai. This is verse 9. His brothers, sons of Rimmon, the Barathite, and they said, he said to them, as the Lord lives who has redeemed my life from all distress. Now, he says, as the Lord lives, and he is about to, to give an oath. He's about to give an oath. We're going to see what that oath is. But he does. He says something about how the Lord God redeems his life. And so I want to stop for just a second, and I want to talk about redemption, okay? Redemption. Redemption, both the Greek and the Hebrew word have the idea to purchase by paying a price. And do you understand that God has redeemed each of us we all owed God death. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. We're supposed to die. That's the wages. And Jesus Christ came and purchased us. He died on the cross to pay for our sins. We were dead in trespasses and sins. We walked according to the prince of the power of the air. We walked according to the lust of the flesh. We were dead. We were destined for wrath. And Jesus Christ took our place. And he redeemed us by purchasing us because the purchase price is death. The wages of sin is death and Jesus died for us. He paid the price to purchase us. 1 Corinthians six nineteen. what do you not know? Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit is in you. You're not your own. You have been bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. First Peter says we're not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He paid for our sin with his blood. Titus 2.14 says he gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. Jesus Christ has purchased each one of us. He died in our place, paying for our sins and purchasing us. Now that study that I'm doing this next, you know, starting Wednesday night, one of, the, one of the lessons is going to be about redemption and the purchasing. And I want you to understand, not only has God purchased each one of us individually, he's purchased the whole world. And there's, a, there's even a contrast between the reconciliation and the purchasing of all people and then the purchasing of believers. And there's a distinction. And if you want to take my class, take my class, because we're going to talk about these things over those weeks. There's a lot of things that are, that are, that are going to be both... Uh, not so deep and then very deep, so it'll be kind of fun. So let's think about redemption. And, Jesus, and, and, and of course, uh, David is talking about how God redeemed him and purchased him. And may we rejoice in the fact that Jesus Christ died in our place and paid the penalty that we could not pay. And he has purchased us. So look what David says. Go back at the very end of verse 9. He says, as the Lord lives who has redeemed my life from all distress. He's talked about it. Here's what he says. When one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, and he thought he was bringing me good news, I seized him and killed him in Ziklag, which was the reward that I gave him for his news. Now, David says, you know, the last time somebody came to me and thought they did me a good deal by killing Saul, I killed them. And all of a sudden, I think these two guys are going, 
Maybe this wasn't such a good idea after all. I mean, David is not too happy about this. I mean, David is not rejoicing. In fact, David's all upset. And look what he says. How much more? Verse 11. When wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house, on his bed, shall I not now require his blood from your hand and destroy you from the earth? He says, you killed a righteous man. Let me tell you something. Ithbosheth was not a bad man. Ithbosheth is called a righteous man. Ithbosheth probably was a good man. He did not deserve to die like that. He should not have been killed. If you said to David, you want us to go kill Ithbosheth so you can be king? He said, no. We have to trust God. God's going to do it in his time and in his way. We have to trust God. We don't do it that way. And so look what David did, verse 12. Then David commanded the young men, and they killed them. And they cut off their hands and feet and hung them up beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the grave of Abner. Now they killed him. And look what it says. They cut off their hands and feet. Why? Because the hands are the ones that killed and the feet are the ones that swift to shed blood. And see, they did that. They cut them and they put them up where everybody could see. And people saw that their hands were gone and their feet were gone. And they were saying, okay, they did something bad. And they went somewhere and they did something bad. And then they took Ishbosheth's head and buried it with Abner. And let me tell you something. David wanted to make sure that everybody knew that he didn't have any part in this at all. He's not responsible for this. Now, just remember, he never said anything bad about Saul. He never said anything bad about Abner. He never says anything bad about Ishbosheth. In fact, he says Ishbosheth is a righteous man. He never says anything bad. And David never tries to get the kingdom himself. He trusts God in this thing. David trusted God, not man, to give him the kingdom. Now, let me just say something about us. We have to live in such a way that we make an impact for Christ and that we are lights in this world. When I, when I started growing as a Christian, back when I was coaching at Mississippi State and I started really growing, a verse kind of stood out to me, and it was 1 Thessalonians 5.22, and it said, abstain from every form or every appearance of evil. And it basically said that as a Christian, be careful, because don't look like, you know, stay away from anything that looks wrong. And the bottom line is, we are men and women who belong to Jesus Christ, And we have to stand strong in this world. We have to be lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. We have to, when we walk out this door, we got to be different than the rest of the world. We cannot be conformed to the culture. So how should we live? Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father by Him. Whatever we say, whatever we do, we have to do it for the glory of God. We should be lights in a fallen world. He says, Do all things without grumbling and complaining, that you may prove yourself to be innocent and blameless, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in which you shine as lights in the world. Every one of us as believers in Jesus Christ are the lights of this world and we're to go into this community and be different. We're not to give appearance of evil. And David says, I had nothing to do with the death of Saul. I had nothing to do with the death of Abner. I have nothing to do with the death of Ishbosheth. He wanted to make sure that's true. And we want to make sure that when people see us, that they see us living righteous and godly lives. Well, what's going to happen now? Saul's dead. Jonathan's dead. Abner's dead. Ishbosheth is dead. What's going to happen? Well, watch. It's now time that the people are going to come together. 
chapter 5, verse 1. Now all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. They're saying, we're all Jewish. We're all in this thing together. It says they came together, and then they're going to start talking. And by the way, you might say, how many people came? I mean, it says the, the tribes of Israel uh, came to meet with David. How many people came to meet with him? Well, it doesn't tell us there, but guess what? First Chronicles tells us three, 339,600 people came. That's what it says. So go over to First Chronicles and read it. It wasn't like 15 people or 20 people or 30 people or 100 people. It was 339,600 came to show support for David. And here's what they said. Previously, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and in. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will be the ruler. And so they're saying to him, the Lord told you, David, you're going to be the one to shepherd the people. God had appointed David to be the king. And David's going to be the shepherd who will guide his people. If you remember Psalm 78, 72, at the very end it says, so he, David, shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart, and he guided them with his skillful hand. Why did God let David grow up to be a shepherd? Because one day he's going to shepherd his people. He's going to bring them together and be the king of Israel and shepherd them. And he's a foreshadow of his greater son, who is Jesus Christ, who is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. David is a foreshadow of our king and savior, Jesus Christ. And, and God is working to prepare us. Look, the things that come into our lives, the events that come into our lives, they're, they're preparing us for his service. Listen, you may say, I got this going on, and I got this going on, and I got this going on. You know what God says? I know. Take those things and grow. Become more like me. Let those things change you. Let those things prepare you to be a man or a woman of God who's going to be used by God for to make a huge impact for Christ. And the things that are going on in your life, God is just using them to prepare you. That's why James says, count it all joy, brother, when you fall into various trials, the testing of your faith works what? Patience. It causes you to trust him. And as you begin to trust him, you grow to be more and more like him. Think Moses. Moses, born as a baby, shipped over to Pharaoh's daughter. She took him. She raised him for 40 years. He was trained in Egypt as a leader, but that wasn't the training that he needed. And at age 40, he killed somebody, had to run, spent the next 40 years on the backside of the desert. What was he doing? He was a shepherd. Trained in Egypt, spent the next 40 years as a shepherd. Why? Because the final 40 years of his life, he was leading and shepherding the nation of Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land. You think of Paul, Paul the Apostle, opposed to Jesus Christ, going after people, trying to get the believers, and on the road to Damascus, he meets Jesus Christ, and what does Jesus do? Jesus Christ saves him, and then he's in Damascus area, and then for three years, God takes him off into the wilderness and trains him and brings him back to use him. What is God doing in your life? What are the things that he's bringing in your life right now training you and equipping you and getting you ready to continue to serve him. Because many of you are serving him right now, but this is not the end of it. Who knows? This may be the beginning of it. There's no telling how he's going to use your life for his glory. He's just training us. Think of the life of David. 
He was a shepherd boy. He killed Goliath. He served Saul, leader of the nation, a general, exiled for over 10 years, became the king of the divided nation, and now he's king of Israel. And everything that he's gone through has prepared him to be the king. And everything you are going through is preparing you to serve God with the gifts, talents, and abilities that you have. You are going to touch lives for Christ beyond what you could imagine if you'll let him do it through you because he's training you and equipping you right now. And so the things that are bad, and you say, I don't like this and I don't like this, well, just have to trust him because he's going to use them. Well, look what happens. Verse 3, so the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them before the Lord at Hebron, and they anointed David as king over Israel. Israel. This is his third anointing. He, he had a private anointing with Samuel. That was when he was with his family. Had a public anointing to be tri- over the tribe of Judah. And now it's a public anointing over all the tribes of Israel. David has become the king. Notice it goes on to say David was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned for 40 years. Now for some of you, 30 years old sound old, but for most of us, 30 years old sounds young. He became king of Israel 30 years old. The king of which is going to be the greatest empire in the world at that time, under Solomon. Now, under David, it was amazing. Under Solomon, it's even greater. 30 years old. Notice what it says. Now, David was 30 years old and became king, and he reigned for 40 years. Think about that. You know that Saul, the first king of Israel, reigned for 40 years? David, the second king of Israel, reigned for 40 years? Solomon, the third king of Israel, reigned for 40 years. It says that Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned for 33 years all over Israel and Judah. Wow. God's promises are always true. God said, David will be the king, and he is. Well, what do we see? Two men came in, they, they killed Ishbosheth, they brought to David, they thought he'd be happy, he had them killed. All the tribes come together. David has now become the king. He's 30 years old, and he's going to rule the greatest nation and God's people. So let me give you some applications very quickly. First, uh, by the way, there's now unity. So let me give you an application. Let, let's not have a part in evil. Let's be different. We've got to live a righteous life in a fallen world. We cannot be shaped by our culture. Our culture is going to push us. Our culture is, in fact, that saying I always say, if you're not consciously being transformed with the Word of God, you will unconsciously be conformed to this world. And it happens unconsciously. And so we do not want this world to shape us. We want to not have a part in evil. We want to live in such a way that we're lights in the midst of a fallen in world. That's who we want to be. Colossians 3.17, whatever you say, whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all for the name of Jesus Christ. And so let's, let's be men and women. And we walk out this door, we've got to be different, different than the world. The second thing is we've got to trust him. Trust God in the trials of our lives. He's working it out. And that we don't always see it. And we say, that doesn't seem right to me. I wish that hadn't happened. I tell you, when I was going through that thing in Mississippi State, when I was coaching there, it was the worst, one of the worst times of my life. And I remember going home sometimes, laying on the bed like this, and just wondering, what is, what is going on? Why is this happening to me? Now I know. I'm glad. I'm glad I left. I'm glad I went to seminary. I'm glad I got to come here. This is the greatest, this is the greatest time of my life. What could be better? We've got to trust him. Realize that the life's events are just getting us ready for the ministry and the service that God has for us. 
every one of you have things in your life that you'd say, that's tough, that's not good, that, ooh, that's, I wish I didn't have that. You got to trust him because God keeps his word. The last one, let's thank God for the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. He came and he died and he paid for sin. That's what he did and he purchased us. So we've been bought. We belong to God. We are redeemed. May we seek to live pure and holy lives for Christ, trusting him in the circumstances of life, knowing that he's, the goal is that he's conforming us to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And he's going to use us to do things beyond what we could ever ask or imagine.